Hello and welcome to this ACE Oncocast update on oncogene-driven non-small cell lung cancer from the World Conference on Lung Cancer, WCLC, in Vienna. My name is Rob Coleman. I'm a medical oncologist at the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom. And I'm pleased to be joined today by two lung cancer experts, Dr. Michael Thomas from Thorax Clinic at Heidelberg University Hospital in Germany, and Dr. Paul Paik from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Welcome, gentlemen, and, and thank you for taking time to join me today. In today's ACE Oncocast, our experts will discuss new data from WCLC on targeting the KRAS G12C mutation. Let's move now on to discuss the management of advanced non-small cell lung cancer harboring a KRAS G12C mutation. This molecular subtype received significant coverage, I believe, at WCLC. But before we divide, dive into the results of some of the abstracts, would you, Michael, please briefly summarize this subset of, of non-small cell lung cancer and what treatment options are currently available for patients with this particular molecular subtype? Yeah, of course. So KRS is uh, one of the most common alterations or the most common alteration in non-small cell lung cancer. So in adenocarcinoma, we know that it's comprising 30 to 35% of patients and particularly KRAS G12C uh, is one third of those KRAS altered ones. So it's uh, in total 13% of non-small cell lung cancer. And this is really a substantial proportion of molecular altered patients or in general of uh, adenocarcinoma patients. KRAS-driven NSCLC is usually associated with a smoking history if, you, if it comes to clinical phenotyping with a high TMB. And we have learned that particular subsets are benefiting from IO or chemo IO treatment. There has been just uh, this ESCO uh, an, an analysis provided by the FDA on, on this uh, point uh, of treatment here. And uh, in uh, the very recent time, in the I, I would say in the last 12 to 18 months, uh, new compounds have been introduced in the field, particularly tackling uh, KRS uh, J12C. The first one has been Zotorazib, which we have learned about last year at ESCO and this year at ESCO. Adagrasib in, in a larger scaled uh, trial in a phase two setting. Both compounds have been clinically developed and they show quite pretty similar results. So the overall response rate in advanced treatment lines by Zotorazib is 37%. By Adagrasib, it's a little bit better. It's 43 but uh, you know, median duration of response is very similar. It's something around 11 months for Sotorazib, 8.5 for Adagrasib, and overall survival time is something about 12 months with those compounds. So they show efficiency uh, and the impact uh, in terms of um, applica applicability in the treatment lines. And currently, uh, uh, Zotorazib as well as um, Adagrasib are employed in second line or further advanced line uh, treatments in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Thank you. And at the conference, uh, Paul, your colleague, Bob Lee from Memorial, presented results from the code break study evaluating the efficacy and safety of Zotorazib in combination with immunotherapy partners. Uh, in patients in this subset of, of lung cancer. Can you highlight the design of this study? Uh, why the combination with immunotherapy and tell us what the key findings were? 
Sure. So the code break sort of 100, 101 phase 1B trial had additional cohorts in it that Bob had presented at World Lung this year. Uh, there are two cohorts in particular that he had presented. So it's a little bit of a complex presentation. Uh, one of them used sotorasib as a lead-in therapy just by itself for one to two cycles and then moved on uh, to combination with either pembrolizumab or atezolizumab. The other cohort was just a straightaway concurrent therapy cohort uh, where the data that were presented were with sotorasib and pembrolizumab. And then also within these cohorts, there were sub-cohorts where sotorasib was dose escalated uh, from 120 milligrams to the FDA-approved dose of 900, 960 milligrams um, as monotherapy. So um, it's also important to note that this was essentially a second-line study. Um, most of the patients had prior anti-PD-1 or PD-1 therapy. And again, most of these patients encountered the regimen as a second-line therapy. Um, what I'd say is that from the concurrent therapy cohort that was initially presented with pembrolizumab, it was a pretty toxic combination. The overall grade greater than equal to three related tox rate was between 75 to 100%, depending on the cohort that you looked at. And there was a specific signal in hepatotoxicity, transaminitis, that happened um, in about 53% of patients for grade greater than equal to three tox. And in some of these higher dose cohorts, it approached 100% of those patients. And so because of that, the concurrent therapy was sort of um, abandoned as a, as a strategy going forward. Uh, Bob then presented the lead-in data um, and here, the grade greater than or equal to three related events uh, was between 30% to 53%, depending on the immunotherapy that was done. So this is a little bit better than what was seen with the current strategy. And the overall treatment-related hepatotoxicity rate that was grade greater than or equal to three was 42%. So that's also a bit better. I think the issue, though, is that the efficacy data that was presented would also, was also not that great. Um, the overall response rate was 29%. Median OS was 15.7 months. No PFS data. And as Michael had just said, the overall response rate from sotorasib alone as a second-line agent is 36%, uh, with a median OS of 12.5 months. And so there was no additive benefit even, uh, uh, and of course, no synergistic benefit. And so, you know, because of that, the conclusion was that um, there might be interesting sort of durable signals that are there, but the strategy that they're focusing on is moving this to the first line setting, where at least in an IO naive population, there will see, they will see at least some additive benefits. So overall, I think interesting data, folks were waiting to see this, but um, sort of not very good tox signal, not very good efficacy signal as far as it goes. Thank you. So we also heard very preliminary data on other combination strategies of sotorosib with different inhibitors, um, some early results with some novel KRS-12C, uh, G12C inhibitors. Um, we're not going to go into the details of each of these phase one studies, but Michael, can you comment on the need for alternative strategies and in this subset of patients and, and which of any of these very early studies caught your eye and, and might show promise for the future? Yeah, of course. It has been quite an interesting session at uh, WLCLC where all those options have been presented. At least this uh, provided the first glimpse on the future. And as Paul already mentioned, uh, combination strategies are explored and, and uh, Paul reflected on the combination with immunotherapy. Another option uh, to combine would be uh, SHIP inhibition, uh, you know, which is uh, um, a certain uh, inhibition strategy in the pathway uh, sidling down to, to ROS activation. And, you know, by dual inhibition to have um, um, 
a tackling strategy against chip and a tackling strategy against KRS, uh, there, there could be perhaps um, uh, additional effect. But if you envisage that, first step to make is to look on toxicity and on side effects and in how far uh, those combinations are possible uh, at all. And here we have some very early uh, first data on the combination of Sotaracib with a chip inhibitor, uh, which has been um, advanced RMC4630. Uh, sorry, uh, I'm not so familiar. I just learned it uh, um, when it has been presented. Um, um, so it seems feasible to combine that. And uh, it has to be awaited. Uh, what is the efficiency in a larger patient cohort? So this is a combination strategy with a chip inhibitor explored. Furthermore, we learned on novel um, KRAS uh, TKIs, uh, one uh, developed uh, from uh, a Chinese uh, trial. Uh, it's D1553. And this inhibitor has been shown in uh, phase 1b settings. So uh, in terms of toxicity, uh, liver enzyme elevations up to grade 3 occurred in up to 20% um, of patients. Uh, around 4% uh, of patients had grade 3 hyperbilirubinemia. So this is something which has to be um, at, at, at least paid attention to. Efficiency uh, has been in the way as we already know it. So the overall response rate in those patients has been 37.8% uh, and disease control rate 90%, progression-free survival um, 7.6 months. Uh, in my perception, this is just another um, uh, KRAS uh, G12C TKI. Uh, and here it has to be paid attention towards the um, toxicity spectrum. And a further compound uh, that has been uh, presented, it's uh, GDC6036. And here the toxicity spectrum seems to be a little bit more convenient because liver enzyme elevations up to grade three occurred in up to 7% of patients, diarrhea grade three, um, half of those which were 3.5% and uh, response rate of 43% has been reported. Uh, in my perception, this compound seems to offer more uh, combination opportunities due to the limited uh, side effect um, spectrum. Thank you for that. And Paul, as we wrap up this section, any additional comments or insights that you'd like to bring? No, Michael summarized this as I think quite excellently and thoroughly. It is about combination. This is what's required when you have an exciting drug like sotorasib and adagrasib, but that ultimately has modest benefit is to pivot to combination. So it'll be interesting to see how these things mature. Thank you, Paul and Michael, for this great discussion. And thank you all for listening. Stay tuned for the next ACE Oncocast as we discuss new data on osimertinib resistance and emerging targeted therapy to overcome the resistance we see.